Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Welcome to the internal workings of my mind. What does that mean? You're about to find out. Thanks for tuning in. This is Colby Pierce on the Cycling in Alignment podcast. Today we're going to talk about the fundamentals of cycling. We'll talk about some physical characteristics of cyclists or really the physical characteristics that a cyclist needs in order to express their best potential in the sport. And I'll break that down quite a bit. Then we'll also get into some mental characteristics or psychic characteristics of the cyclist. And we'll break down those a good bit. And then at the end, we're going to make a model that is like a, a hierarchy of performance factors, I'll call it. And this is inspired by Paul Chuck's totem pole. And we'll put a link to what that is in the show notes so you have some clues to what I'm talking about. But this is a really interesting concept and I've been developing it for a long time. It's not, it's not done yet. That's okay. I'm just going to throw it out there. <clears throat> Why would I do such a thing? Why would I give you a concept that I'm not fully, haven't fully developed? Well, there's a concept that I learned um, listening to an interview years ago from a guy. He's the owner and head builder at Argonaut Cycles. I believe his first name is Ben. And someone asked him, what is V2.0? When does the next model of Argonaut road bike come out? And what technologies will it have? What amazing tube shapes and aero tubing profiles and shock absorbers and gizmos will it have? And his response was both simple and concise at the same time. Simple and detailed. Concise and organized. It was all those things. And what he said was, there is no version 2.0. My operating principle is simple. Whenever I make a frame and I hand it to the customer, the frame I hand to the customer is always the best possible version of any bike I can make at that moment. So every frame is always being improved. And the moment that I have an actionable improvement, it goes into assembly immediately. He's not saying he's prototyping and handing it to customers. What he's saying is as soon as something's been proven to be effective, that technology gets integrated into the new build. And I realized that I had been practicing that own method in my coaching and fitting all along. I just hadn't really processed it that way. So as a coach or a fitter, if there's something I can do to improve my product or further assist my clients, I just do it. There's no wait, stop, I've got to revise things. There's no, this is the unveiling of the new method then method is always new because it's always being refined, like the concept of Kaizen manufacturing in Japan as a parallel. So thanks, Ben, for synopsizing that idea for me and uh, crystallizing it in my own brain closet. So what am I saying? I'm saying that the totem pole that I have, the idea, the hierarchical, hierarchical list of performance factors that can give us an idea of where a cyclist is in the ladder of expressing their 
highest inner potential. That concept is not fully developed, but I wouldn't present it to you if I thought it was garbage. There's some work to be done on it, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Let's talk about the fundamentals of cycling and why, why do we care? Well, I think we care because we're passionate about the sport. I'm passionate about the sport. I'm the world's biggest bike dork. Threw down the gauntlet in my other podcast in case you didn't miss that. The world's biggest bike dork. I think that the fundamentals of a sport can be lost when it grows rapidly. And cycling has undergone some rapid growth in the last decade or so. Why? I don't know. I don't sit around and analyze this stuff too much. I think some of it can probably be attributed to Lance. And the fact that he did what he did, all the things he did, the bike races he, air quotes, won, and the doping he did, and the bully and he did, and the interviews he did, and everything else he did. Lance did a lot of things, when you think about it. So the cancer he defeated, and the foundation he started, and then compromised. So Lance had a massive impact on a lot of people's lives, and probably still is on some. And he probably spread the word of cycling and that became infectious and people realized what it was. I think also probably arguably more so now in the last 15 years of our lives and our, I say collectively as a humanity and probably I'm referring mostly to a, an American or North American perspective because that's where I live. That's my culture. I would argue that we're, li we're living in a more materialist time than we have in many other times of our lives and cycling is kind of by definition it's a bit materialistic um it caters to a personality a type of person who likes things it's a f it, it can almost be a sport that is argued people have fetishes within because we dork out over components and shapes of tires and and bike parts are they're function, but they're also art. They're definitely of 51% of, of each on those somehow. And um, I think sometimes that makes some cycling components really crappy because when you put the, the art before the function, things don't work right. But even few other sports have such a beautiful blend of, of devices that are so functional and at the same time look so cool. Of course, that's completely subjective. You have to fall in love with the sport and buy into it before you see that. Someone who's not a cyclist is just looking at us, shaking their heads, going, you people are such dorks. I hope you're conscious of that as a cyclist because I'm very conscious of it. So when the sport grows, we can lose fundamentals. We Why? Because we have an injection of new blood and those people have to be taught. And how are cyclists taught? Things like how to ride in a group safely. How to take one hand off the bars, how to go around a corner with correct form and weight distribution. How are people taught how to pace line? How are people taught these things? And in today's sport, there are there's more of an opportunity for a rider to get strong using things like an indoor trainer and a power meter and get focused on the numbers, especially a science mind, an engineering mind likes the numbers. But who's there to help them? Who's there to help them with those fundamentals? Like, how do you actually pedal a bike with proper form? And I'll pick this apart. So I think some of that can be lost. 
Also, cycling is a victim of its own clickiness and hierarchical-ity. Pretty sure I just made that word up. I'm also pretty sure you'll know what I meant by it. So cycling has a pecking order. And um, this has always really bothered me, no matter what side of it I've been on. And at moments, I've been on all sides of it. I just think it's tribalistic thinking. It's another form of tribalistic thinking, which is simply separation of self from other. And when you really look at that from a macro lens, there's no argument for it. It makes no sense. It's dividing. I'd rather be uniting. So, and clearly when you're riding indoors and there's been a massive influx of indoor riding platforms, you know, all kinds of smart trainers and programs where you can ride in simulated cycling environments. Well, that's going to teach you to focus on numbers and it's an artificial environment. And one of my base philosophies in life is always choose real. doesn't matter if we're talking about food or sugar or cycling or sex. I prefer real sex to simulated sex. It's just where I'm at with it. I'll consistently make that choice across all those platforms given real versus artificial. I'm not saying anyone who chooses those things is bad or wrong. I'm just telling you what my preferences are. I would also argue that the culture of cycling is changing. And there are people who really don't like this. There are people who are kind of firmly attached to the old school cycling culture. That's toe straps and, uh, you know, even as far back as biddens on the front handlebars and more cables exposed and less electronic shifting and leather shoes and leather chamois and whatever else you want to put in there, hair nuts or no helmets and, you know, Moreto Argentine era type stuff. Um, and that part of the sport was beautiful and it crafted what part of the cycling is today. Um, now the sport is, it's different in a lot of ways. And that also can mean a loss of fundamentals because the more content something has by definition the easier it is to lose the pillars of what originally created it unless we remind ourselves so hopefully today i can give you some reminders about what some of those fundamentals are i think i know some of them i probably don't know all of them but here goes we'll begin with what i believe are physical characteristics a cyclist needs to have as i said in order to express their best inner riding self to go the fastest on the bike or to ultimately follow and actualize, materialize their one dream goal or objective, which may or may not directly be related to the bike. But if they're stepping out of bed in the morning and putting their foot on the ground and taking a step towards their one dream goal or objective, and they choose to ride their bikes, then that cycling should at least serve the one dream in some fashion, even if it's just riding your bike to work. And your dream is to do your best job at whatever it is your occupation is. But along the way, part of that dream is to have a lower environmental impact, for example. Cadence. We're going to start with cadence. These are not in any particular order. The hierarchy comes later. So don't get hung up on that idea. But a good cyclist needs to be able to produce power at a very high cadence and a very low cadence. Why? Well, whenever we coach a cyclist or fit a cyclist to a bicycle, ultimately we're balancing two things. 
On the one hand, we have the physiology of the rider. And on the other hand, we have the demands of the event. Now, if your event is not competitive, then we would argue that you still want to fit the bicycle and train the athlete to meet the demands of that event, whatever that may be. If the rider is riding their bike around the perimeter of Ireland, which is, I don't know, I don't know how long it is, even though I've done the Tour of Ireland three times. We'll say it's 4,000K, stab in the dark, dartboard. And so the rider must be able to tolerate however many kilometers they're going to do in a day and then carry their camping gear and find their water or find their hotel or however the structure of the event's going to go. So cadence demands play into that in the sense that cycling requires a large variety of cadences in order to cycle effectively. At low cadence or higher torque, and we'll get into torque in a moment, uh, it's important for a rider to maintain proper alignment or posture on the bike because under really high tor torque conditions, of course, or uh, you could call them an SFR interval, which stands for something in Italian, which just means really low cadence. You're placing more demand on the muscular system, the neuromuscular system, and less demand on the aerobic system, and also correspondingly more power, more torque on the joints and the fascial system. And if things aren't aligned properly, then you can cause yourself some pain pretty quickly, knee pain being the most common, but back is also in there somewhere. Sometimes Achilles too, depending on how disastrous your bike setup or is or how disastrous your form is. We also need to have high cadence. The ability to generate power at high cadence is useful. Uh, for me, that's particularly poignant because I spent many years racing the track and would commonly see sprint data in excess of 130 or 135 RPM in a points race. That's pretty regular. Sometimes you'd hit the mid 140s. In a six day, you could hit 150s easily. Match sprinters in the time that I was racing World Cups, the gearing was more, we'll say, conservative. And match sprinters would hit cadences of over, well, anywhere from 160 to 180 RPM in a mash sprint finish or a Kieran finish. Now it's become a bit of a gearing arms race and the training has changed and people, riders are using much bigger gears than they used to. The cadence range is not as high. So, but still requires quite rapid cadence. Why is this significant? Why do we care? Well, someone who's riding Zwift all winter and using the platform primarily as a means of entertainment, well, what happens? They get commonly sucked into riding at a competitive pace. And whenever you ride at a competitive pace, especially year-round, usually your cadence is self-selected, which means you're going to choose a cadence that's within the narrow range of what you are sensing or intuiting is going to give you optimal performance. What does that mean? That means that you tend to hover around your ideal cadence most of the time and not deviate too much. And when the base of training is very narrow, the demands of the athlete are narrow in training or restricted, then you get an athlete with less depth on competition day. Another way to think about that is the old colloquialism, train your weakness, race your strength. So if you really suck at making power at high cadence, guess what my prescription will be as a coach? And vice versa. 
on that note, all the time I have riders who come to me and say, it's much easier for me to make more power when I'm climbing on a climb. Why is that? Well, that takes us into torque. And this is a fascinating discussion. This is one of the things I got to think quite a bit about and discussed with Uli Ulrich Schilberer when I worked at SRM. For some weird reason, this sport doesn't, we quantify some variables and not others. So it's very common for people to look at their head unit, their whatever you're using, your SRM PC8 or your Garmin or your Wahoo or your whatever else is out there. And people have data fields set up and they have heart rate and then they have power and they have cadence. What's missing from this picture? Well, what is power comprised of? Power is comprised of cadence and torque or backing up. Power is comprised of speed and force. It's how hard you push and how quickly you push. So there are three ways you can improve your power. One, you can push harder. Two, you can push faster. Three, you can do both. Now, in order to push faster, the force has to remain the same for power to increase. But commonly, more commonly, when people push faster, their power goes down. That gets a bit technical, but you see the point I'm trying to make, I'm sure. So why is it that we track power on our head units and we also quantify cadence? Well, first of all, why do most coaches that I've seen, not most, many, not specify cadence during their workout prescriptions? This is essential. It's just as essential as going into the gym and saying, do 12 squats in each set. You're going to do four sets of 12 and not specifying the tempo. The tempo of the lift is very important because it really influences the rate of muscle fatigue, the rate of force development, and also the effect you're going to get from the strength training. All the same is true on the bike. I can have someone climb a hill at FTP for 20 minutes. I mean, give me a three by 20 generic workout, generic threshold workout, and we can let them self-select their cadence and perhaps they'll be average at 92 RPM or 88 RPM if they go up a 6% grade. But if we tell them to average 110 RPM or conversely, 60 RPM, there'll be very different demands on those workouts. So we need to consider how cadence and torque interplay to change the demands of the workout on the athlete and how they provide a desired training effect. That's as a coach, as an athlete, a physical characteristic of a cyclist, we need the cyclist to have the broadest base of abilities possible in order to maximize the chance for success at their event. The closer you get to the event, the more sports specific you can be and event specific you can be. But in February, it's a great time to work on cadence extremes. And for those of you who are coached by me, you'll know that I do this pretty regularly. The SRM PC8 is the only head unit I know of that has a torque widget installed. If someone out there knows of another head unit that does that, let me know. Um, email me. We need an athlete to be able to produce a large variety of ranges of cadence and torque, and also understand how those two interplay. When an athlete says to me, it's easier to make power on a climb, why is this? This is normally because we associate going hard with pushing hard on the pedals because they feel the resistance proprioceptively of the foot pressing against the pedal or really the inside of their shoe, the insole of their shoe. They're custom-made orthotic, which most people should have in their shoes, by the way. Not all, but many or some type of footbed, please. 
So when you push against that footbed, you feel the resistance of the pedal. You feel how hard it is for you to make the crank go faster. And that sensation is what you equate with going hard. But as we talked about, when we dissected the physics of power, you can increase your power by either increasing foot speed or increasing foot force. Foot force in a circle is called torque. And foot speed in a circle is called cadence. Cadence times torque equals power. How fast you push and how hard you push. So these are the fundamental aspects of power. And whenever we train an athlete, we break down the fundamentals into further fundamentals and we train those and we manipulate those variables. And this is how one of the ways we get training. A rider, a physical characteristic, a rider must also have a supple muscle. What does that mean? A supple muscle is, this is a concept that's really lost in modern cycling, in particular when riders ride the trainer quite a bit. There's this device that some people don't know about. It's a training device. It's a very useful tool. It's called rollers. In Europe, the term rollers and trainer are used interchangeably. I'm talking about rollers, which are freestanding, meaning you pedal the bike and you also balance the bike on the rollers at the same time. Rollers can be a powerful tool to develop supple muscles, meaning leg muscles that can generate power smoothly and efficiently with high amounts of force without a jerky or unnatural or mechanical motion. So you see someone pedaling at 130 RPM in zone three or zone four power on the rollers, the head's not moving, the body's not moving, the torso's not moving, but the legs are underneath the body moving like we're blending cookies, cookie dough, using a KitchenAid at high speed. That's setting four. Or an egg beater. Supple muscle helps the cyclist maintain smooth upper body, which helps direct the bike in a straight line. If you're bobbing all over the place, it's gonna be harder to steal your bike straight, but also a smooth upper body is, as a general statement, much more aerodynamic. The more turbulence you create by shoulder motion, head motion, chin bobbing, uh, torso moving, the more you're gonna disrupt airflow. We want smooth airflow, not, not choppy airflow. The rider also needs an ability to hinge well at the hip. This concept's really lost on a lot of people. Um, and this gets a bit into the, the, the old school aspect of cycling. And look, to be fair, there are a lot of Italian wives tales, so to speak, about bike fitting and about posture on the bike. And there are a lot of older fundamental aspects of cycling. And I'm not saying some of these are good or bad. This isn't a Disney paradigm lecture. I'm not telling you, um, I'm not assigning value to these things. What I'm doing is processing them and examining them and picking them apart so we can take what we want to take moving forward and we can discard what no longer needs to be discarded. Just as perhaps when your great-grandmother used to give you a fruitcake for Christmas every year, one year you woke up and said, why do I eat this? I really don't like it. We're going to discard some fruitcakes. So hinging at the hip Imagine an athlete standing with perfect posture. What does that mean? Well, when you view them from the side, if you hung a plumb line from their ear, it would bisect the center of the shoulder, the center of the hip, the center of the knee, and the center of the ankle. That's 
a bit of a crude overview, but get the idea. There's not excessive lower cross or upper cross syndrome, which means they don't have kyphosis. The chest isn't collapsed forward. The shoulders aren't hunched forward. They don't have either excessive lumbar flexion or extension, meaning there's a natural curve to the lower spine, a proper curve. We can measure these curves if we need to, but it's common for cyclists to have these curves be out of whack because we spent so much time hunched over, not just on our bikes, but of course, computing, flying, driving, all the things we do in the seated position. I happen to be seated right now. So by paying attention to posture and being conscious of our movement and our body position, we can offset this, of course. But when we sit a lot, it's more common than not for people to learn or adopt a crappy hinge pattern. What does that mean? Well, the human spine really isn't meant to be flexed all the time. So when we have our human standing in perfect posture, if we were to measure the distance from on the front side of the body, we could use the top of the pubic bone to the sternum or the belly button to the collarbones or the nipples to the bumpy prominences at the front of the hip, otherwise known as the ASIS. When we take a measurement of any of these markers and we bend forward, that distance should not get smaller or shorter. It should stay the same. This means your back doesn't bend when you bend down to pick up your piece of paper you dropped or your paper clip or pet your kitty. It means that you, your forward bend happened at the hip. And this is the ideal way for us to forward bend flex at the hip. And this is primarily how we want to do it on a bike. In fact, one of my happy to do checklists is to have someone forward bend at the hip with a very close to straight spine when they are riding in the hoods and on the tops. We have to accept that when riders ride in the drops, there's going to be some lumbar flexion for the vast majority of all riders because that's a pretty extreme angle. And in particular, if the rider has aerodynamics as one of the demands of their event, they're going to need some reasonably low handlebars. So we're going to get some lumbar flexion. It's just the way it's going to work. So ability to hinge at the hip properly is beneficial. Uh, understand your own hip flexion pattern. And you can do this, by the way, if you don't have a clue as to what I'm talking about, there's this thing that most people own. It's called an iPhone. And you can just set that up on your bookcase and put yourself on the trainer and put that thing, plunk it along at 90 degrees. Uh, parallel to your top tube and take 30 seconds of video and educate yourself. I'm also a huge fan of narcissism when it comes to indoor training. I advise people to go buy a full length body mirror and put it in front of their rollers. First choice rollers. And you'll be amazed at what you can learn about your own posture. Watch your knee tracking. What's your head doing? Is it bobbing all over the place? Is your nose centered over the stem or is it wildly off to one side or the other. What are your hips doing? Is one hip moving more than the other? Based on what I've seen in bike fitting over the last however many years I've been doing it, 10 years, yes. The answer is yes. One hip is moving more than the other. That's more common than not. We also need mobile and functional shoulders as bike racers. Most shoulders are frighteningly close to being frozen in the world of cycling. Um... What, what a lot of cyclists tend to do is hunch their shoulders and draw them up towards their earlobes, pull the shoulders, the center of the shoulders up as though they were trying to touch their earrings or graze their earlobes and hold the shoulders that way kind of permanently. 
when we're taking full diaphragmatic deep breaths that then the last third of the breath ascends into the chest, if the shoulder pinch, this can impinge breathing motion, although probably only at the very maximum of capacity. Pinching the shoulders to the ears does have an aerodynamic benefit, and I'll get into time trial positioning in a bit, but it also comes at a cost of stabilization of the torso. And when we want a stable, anchored, strong torso, for example, when we're climbing out of the saddle, especially during explosive efforts, such as attacks on climbs, we want the pelvis to be stable and anchor because we're generating maximal force with the proximal segments, excuse me, the distal segments, i.e., in this case, the legs. We need to counterbalance that with what we've got to counterbalance it and stabilize the torso, and that's the arms. So having a functional and mobile shoulder is important. And I see a lot of riders who just sort of deal with chronic shoulder pain. They come into my, my fit studio and tell me that they've had chronic nerve stuff in their neck or chronic pain in their neck or their neck. Um, sometimes they'll sleep on it funny, so to speak. And then they wake up and then for a few days they can't turn their head. This used to happen to me when I was a junior. I was well and a, and a young senior rider. This was a sign that I had a global stability dysfunction. Don't have that problem anymore. We also need some level of global fascial tension. What do I mean by that? Well, what's fascia? All right, let's just assume for a moment that we need to define fascia. Fascia is the connective tissue that runs throughout your body and it runs literally tip to tail or head to toe, balls to bones, soup to nuts. It goes around and through every organ and muscle in your body and it's all connected remember that song the leg bones connected to the hip bone well this is the fascial bone which is not a bone and it is connected all the way through so this is why you see some interesting phenomenon in the world of time trialing when we go through our arrow rider checklist we see fascial tension being a limiting factor so fascia is a curious thing if it's too tight, it can really inhibit a rider's performance and cause some global dysfunction very quickly or some acute pain. But that pain can be referred in places where it's not necessarily the problem. If fascia is too loose, then we have an issue where the rider gets begins to accumulate too much strength in the distal segments. What do I mean by that? Distal just means far away. So the distal segments, what I'm referring to is really your legs and arms. If your legs and arms get really strong and cycling more likely your legs and you don't have the core strength to handle it, then what happens? We've all seen riders who go to stand up on a hill and they push so hard on the pedals and their quads are super strong and their glutes are strong and they slam on that pedal, but their hips and their ribs twist out of place under that force, right? You see this. This doesn't happen often at the world tour level, but you see it in amateur cycling all the time. And this can be a hyperflacidity of the sling system or the fascial system. If the fascial system is too loose, all the strength in the world won't hold things together. What can cause a fascial system to be too loose? Well, simply put, overstretching or too much yoga. Now, I'm not going to bash yoga on the whole. That's a big topic and far outreaches the, the scope of this podcast. But 
the human body does certain things really well. Whether or not it was evolved to do that or engineered to do that is a different discussion. Also a different wormhole. But when we stretch a body's fascial system excessively, it can cause problems in terms of global body stability and systems can become disconnected. Pop quiz. What is the human body meant to do physically? I asked Chris this question on our recent podcast and he got it right. He got an A plus. The body is really best at running and walking. That's our, that's one of our primary functions is vertebrates. And when we run and walk, we engage sling systems. A sling system is simply a coordination of muscles and fascia to give a tension that can help reciprocate motion and stabilize the body to move forward. For example, when you run and you stride with one leg, the contralateral arm will swing and there's a tension across the back that helps stabilize the torso. And all that motion and force goes into the ground and the body moves forward instead of twisting or turning wildly out of control or not having any control over the vector of where the person's trying to make the body go. If you're running from a tiger, you wanna go in a straight line away from the tiger. And if you have no sling system, if you have no tension across the back in a diagonal fashion, when you push down with the right leg and swing the left arm, you'd be a bag of bones that would fall to the ground or you'd, your torso would twist under that load and then you would go sideways and the tiger would catch you. This is one challenge we have as cyclists is one of the demands of the sport is to pedal with supple muscle, especially in their lower legs, and at times to move with minimal upper body movement, not at all times, but during some times. And that can disengage that sling system. So when we use a lot of stretching and a lot of yoga, we can also disengage or downregulate that sling system or that fascial tension. There's a natural amount of fascial tension that leads to a healthy human body that can have a springiness and a, a plyometric, plyometric nature to it. And if you, when you learn to look for this quality in an athlete, you can see the ones who have it and they see the ones who don't. I can see that I used to not have this as a younger rider. I was hopelessly disconnected from my legs and they were just jabbing without, without real effective force. It's taken me a long time and a lot of different modes of exercise to sort of culminate in that. One other point I'll make is that as a society, we tend to glorify or um, pedestalize, I'm making up words all over the place today, flexibility. People tend to think of flexibility as a good thing. Please stop Disney paradigming everything. It's not a good character in a movie. It's not a bad character in a movie. Flexibility isn't good or bad. It's on a spectrum just like everything else. And you can have too little of it or too much of it. If you have too little of it and you can't make it to your handlebars, then, well, you either need a bike fit or you need to work on your flexibility. And if you have too much of it, then you become a bag of bones with uh, maybe really strong muscles that can't make force collectively. And we don't make force on a bike by only flexing one muscle or use or flexing one joint, excuse me, or contracting one muscle. We use multiple muscles and multiple joints to make force on a bike effectively, whether you're conscious of it or not. So when there's a lack of tension in the fascial system that compromises the overall stability of the athlete. Now, whether that tension disappeared because of too much yoga or not enough 
collagen or protein deficient diet or chronic dehydration, all of which are possible, or whether the athlete is having deep-seated psychic issues about their safety and security, and that leads them to a physical state that reflects this lack of stability in their life, depends on the athlete, requires deeper analysis. But all of those are possible explanations. And for those of you who are wondering what the hell I'm talking about, yes, there is a direct correlation often between the psychic state of an athlete and the physical challenges they have. I'll talk a lot more about that concept down the road. Moving on. Rate of force development is an important physical attribute for bike racers. What do I mean by rate of force development? It's simply how quickly you can make very high levels of force. And a little bit down the road here, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to fight cycling a little bit. I'm going to I'm going to do it from a place of love cuz I'm the world's biggest bike dork, but I'm going to annihilate cycling and talk about all the things that it does to your body that are not positive. The things it downregulates. Rate of force development is one of those. In order for a cyclist to be effective and be multidimensional, not be trapped by their aerobic limitations, they need to have a capacity to generate force, a lot of force very quickly. Force ceiling. Anyone who's a bike racer can see this as being a rate limiting factor. There are times when someone attacks out of the field and you perhaps have tried to follow them, perhaps weren't able to follow that rider's pace up the climb. So for 10 seconds, you were on the wheel and then seconds 12 through 18, you started to lose the wheel. And then at second 20, you looked up and said, how did that three bike lengths get there? I'm pedaling as fast as I can. This means that rider had superior rate of force development to yours. All said and done. Accounting for the physics of the situation and other variables. We'll get to that in the hierarchy part. That'll be cool. Symmetry. Look, here's the deal. Most bikes are very symmetrical. You know, I mean, yeah, of course, occasionally people set bikes up symmetrically, asymmetrically on purpose, like they might tilt a saddle to the side one way or the other. I don't really recommend that normally. Although every once in a blue moon, it can work out in case you're wondering. Uh, one of my colleagues, a coaching colleague of mine, realized he had a longer forearm on one side than the other. And he once he figured that out, he we started padding his brake lever on one side and his tape on one side. And a lot of his back problems in asymmetrical the way his uh, asymmetries of his hips sat on the bike were resolved. So there are situations where we can set up bikes asymmetrically with intention, or maybe you did it by accident because you were one of those people who accidentally put on a 172 five crank on one side and a 175 on the other. Oopsies. But in most cases, bikes are quite symmetrical and all humans are asymmetrical. The question is to what degree? I've yet to meet a perfectly symmetrical human, but all our bone lengths are off by fractions of millimeters or maybe a few millimeters here and there. Then we have muscle tension patterns. Uh, we got more lobes of lung on one side than the other. Livers weigh a lot, especially when they're all full of glycogen because you ate all that pizza or purple potatoes would be my first choice. And you, so you've got this big, liver that's strong and vibrant and ready to smash kilojoules and annihilate watt bombs all over the road. But hmm, that's weird. You, you aren't walking quite straight or you're sitting a little funny because your organs aren't distributed in a symmetrical fashion. 
So what's the point? The point is we're trying to mesh an asymmetrical human body to a symmetrical machine, and that's going to come with some inherent challenges. It just sort of is that way. And if we study a bit of Kit Laughlin, who's a an Australian practitioner who specializes in stretching and myofascial release techniques. You can look up a lot of his stuff online if you want. We'll put a link in the show notes. He's really brilliant. He's got a lot of free resources, very generous with his time and knowledge. Kit would tell us that when he's studied large numbers of subjects, things don't work out the way you might assume. So let's put a thousand people in a room and do a flexibility assessment on all 1,000 of those people. Now let's look at the rate of injury and correlate it to that pile of a thousand people. What do we get? Well, you might assume that the more flexible end of the room or the spectrum would be less likely to be injured and the more house brick, we'll call it, side of the spectrum would be more likely to be injured. But in fact, when Kit's done this exact exercise, he did not find that that was the correlation. Instead, what he found was that the more asymmetrical a person was in their flexibility, regardless of the level of flexibility, the more likely they were to be injured. So it doesn't matter if you're Gumby or a house brick. What matters is if you're, if there's a significant degree of difference in range of motion between one hamstring and the other, that puts you in a category of likely for injury. So what does this come down to? As Nicole Devaney would say to us, She's a Czech practitioner who taught one of my courses recently, know your syndromes, or more broadly put, know thyself, know your own numbers, figure out what your weaknesses are. If one hamstring or one hip is really tight all the time, that's probably a warning sign that something needs to be addressed. That's what Paul would call, Paul Czech would call, refer to as the pain teacher. The pain teacher is giving you a little lesson, knocking on the door, giving you a little tap. And if you continue to ignore those signs, well, pain teacher's really persistent, tends to not go away. She just hangs out. She's very patient. She can also get really loud. Otherwise known as life is a series of lessons. When you pass the lesson, you may move on to the next one. But until you pass the lesson, it will be repeated. What else do cyclists need physically? We've got a pretty good list going here, but we're not there yet. We're getting there. Ah, here's a gem. FTP, functional threshold power, zone four, anaerobic threshold, maximal lactate steady state. Uh, let's see. I'm sure there's like five other terms for it. We'll just we'll just call all those interchangeable. Um, some of the lab people out there might not be happy with that, but conceptually they're identical, if not very close. This is the Maximum amount of power you can generate for, depending on the definition, one hour or a really long period of time or your time to exhaustion if you're using WKO5. Again, don't need to separate that. The point is, it's your, it's your, it's an assessment of your maximal ability of your aerobic engine. It's the most amount of lactate you can consume without the bathtub spilling over. What's going on there? So as we progress intensity, we pass through the aerobic threshold. This is where lactate production and shuttling and usage begins. So most of you probably know that lactate's not only that thing that makes your muscles burn and shut down. In fact, it's not even really that. It's a fuel. It's a fuel in your system, and we use it as fuel. It's a crucial fuel, actually. The issue is that we can't 
consume all the lactate we can generate. So there's a point when there's an overflow. And when the overflow really starts to escalate, this is the point we're talking about. This is FTP. Functional threshold power is the number that everyone just absolutely bludgeons to death right now. And it's a bit of a red herring because my goal as a coach and fitter is to see everything and see all rate limiting factors. And very, I'll tell you right now, this may come as a some sort of mind-blowing statement. I'll just, let's go with that. Very, very rarely is functional threshold power the most important or even in the top three most important rate limiting factors of how fast one of my athletes can go in a race. But what is the go-to metric? What do, the, what do when we're standing around at the start of a group ride and when I we mean we, I don't mean I because I don't do that many group rides anymore. And pardon the expression, but everybody whips out their dick and starts talking about how cool they are. What's the number they talk about? Functional threshold. Oh, my FTP is at 305. Oh, mine's 310. <sighs> Did you hear my sigh? First of all, FTP is not comparable apples to apples. I hope you understand this. I'm sure you do. But just in case some people are wondering what I'm talking about, to have an apples to apples comparison, you need to convert it to watts per kilo, right? Because of course, somebody who weighs 90 kilos is going to have a much bigger functional threshold power than me. I weigh about 64 kilos. But does that mean they're going to drop me on a climb? Well, no, not necessarily. We have to divide that by the number of kilograms we weigh. That's kilograms, not pounds, because as you know, I only speak in relevant units. Love you, America. Catch up with the rest of the world. So functional threshold power is the go-to metric that people like to quantify and improve and strive to improve. And they assume that if they improve their FTP, that everything will magically come into place. And they spend months, years trying to improve their FTP. FTP is a predictor of race performance. And look, this is probably ultimately popularized by one guy, Andy Coggin. And I have immense respect for Andy. He's done amazing things in the sport. We all use the metrics that Andy has invented or conceptualized in our discussions commonly. So we have a lot to be grateful for in Andy's contributions. That said, in my opinion, Andy's methods overemphasize the aerobic dominance of cycling. Why? Because culturally, when we think of road racing, what we tend to think of is someone winning a 120-mile Tour de France road race. The fact is that that aspect of the sport is almost dead in Colorado. We have about five road races you could describe as even close to that model for amateurs in, in an entire summer. And I'm not bashing race promoters here. Hardest, most payless, thankless job on the planet that I can think of pretty much. Perhaps other than soup kitchen manager. And look, the, you're ice skating uphill in all directions when you try to be a road race promoter in Colorado for sure. In the U.S., definitely. This is why gravel's taking off and et cetera, et cetera. Don't need to go down that road. It's sad, but true. Um, but that's how we think of cycling. And yes, when you do a 120-mile road race with three oars category climbs and a cat one and a two that aren't even on the map because who cares, and a bajillion feet of vertical gain, then yeah, probably in most cases the rider with the biggest FTP is going to have a very high probability of doing well in the race or winning. And FTP will be, or watts per kilo will say, at functional threshold power, will be a very good predictor of the outcome of the race. But there aren't that many races that are like that. 
And I wish that people could understand that racing comes down to a lot more than that. As I said, most often rate limiting factors in my rider's performance is not FTP. It's many, there are many other variables that include, that determine the outcome of an athlete or the performance of an athlete on the bike that allow their greatest expression or upregulation of their truest potential. One of those is FRC or functional reserve capacity. Now that's the WKO5 training peaks term for it. You can also call it W prime. What is it? It's the number of kilojoules of energy you can expend above threshold without being smoked. What, what does that mean? Well, you can think of it as the number of anaerobic bullets, kind of. That'd be a colloquial, colloquial way to say it. Colloquial. Colloquial. But another practical way to look at it is we've all seen examples of this. Imagine at one point in your life you were watching a criterion because you were warming up for your race or you got there and you were watching your significant other race while you were warming up for your event, whatever. And the breakaway gets established and then one person decided they're going to bridge across to the break and they make it halfway there or maybe even eight-tenths of the way there. Four-fifths will reduce fractions. And they just are trapped. They can't quite, quite close that gap and they're pinned in this 10-second purgatory for the remaining 20 minutes of the race. And they finish in eighth place behind the seven breakaway riders, but firmly in front of the peloton. Or even more cruelly, they get gobbled up by the peloton in the last 50 meters. This, what happened? Well, the riders' functional reserve capacity was most likely depleted or exhausted, and they were pinned at threshold. That means that what they could do was simply ride at maximal steady state lactate, but they were unable to lift pace, even for that brief moment, to close the final 10 second gap, to bridge the gap to the breakaway. You can think of many instances where this has happened. I mean, this is basically what every cyclocross race is. It explodes in slow motion. Everybody rides, they exhaust their FRC, they ride at FTP. Maybe they have minute amounts, minute amounts of recovery of their FRC at periods of a lap, but not enough to bridge gaps. Or occasionally, sometimes places do happen. Place changes do happen in races without dissecting it too much, that can also be changes in rhythm, blood sugar, other factors. But you understand the point, I'm sure. FRC is a significant contributor to the outcome of bike races. Go back to our long 120-mile road race example. Why do I use miles? Sorry. 190K, we'll call it that. Which may or may not be 120 miles. Who cares? So the riders are three climbs in. They're on a half an hour long climb. And the leaders are climbing together. We'll call it a dozen riders. And one rider accelerates violently and surges away from the group. They attack. And they build quickly a 15-second gap. And from that point to the line, that 15-second gap is maintained. What made the difference in that example, this simplified race example? FRC. The rider who attacked had a higher FRC and was able to achieve separation from the remaining riders in the lead group. This is what FRC does. So anyone who doesn't even know what FRC is or doesn't train functional reserve capacity or have a concept of how many anaerobic bullets they've got in their holster is missing out on a huge component of racing. And if you are one of those people and you have been focused on FTP exclusively, unless your own, the only event you care about the entire year is a 40-kilometer time trial, 
If you're doing any mass start racing at all, or any racing that involves change in pace, this means road races, criterium, circuit races, or even time trials with undulating courses, you need to train FRC if you're going to be the best bike rider you can be. Lactate tolerance. Lactate tolerance is a necessary physical ability for riders, obviously, and this comes down to repeated surges in short bursts where you are generating lactate, usually above FTP, and then you've got to process that lactate. So the levels, so you don't swim in it too much. Basically what this means is when we've got our bathtub analogy and we're, we turn on the faucet, we're filling up the bathtub with lactate. When you're at, when you're in the aerobic zone and you're consuming as much lactate as you are making, you're burning it for fuel and you're manufacturing it, then the level of the water in your bathtub stays constant, but the bathtub is full, right? So to be clear, we turn on the faucet when we start riding, but below aerobic threshold, no water accumulates in the tub. You're making the tiniest amount of lactate, but there's no accumulation. As soon as we cross aerobic threshold, which is around what we'll call zone two for most riders, then lactate begins to accumulate in the tub. And it accumulates a little more and a little more, but it's not rising above the rim of the tub. When we cross threshold or FTP, then the tub begins to overflow and water spills out the side. Why? Because we're putting more, we've turned the faucet on more and more water's coming in than is able to go out the drain hole. When we train lactate tolerance, we're making the drain hole bigger. So we can dump in a lot more water, but it we're not quite overflowing. It maybe overflows a little bit here and there, but then it drains quickly. But we can only turn the water, we can pulse the water. We can pulse very high levels of water and still the, the tub drains quickly. That's really what lactate tolerance is, metaphorically speaking. Clearly it has an outcome in any race which will have a heated moment or period of time with repeated attacks and accelerations on off on off this is very characteristic of a lot of amateur races where you have to recover where you have to recover and then cover repeated attacks or trade covering attacks with your teammates for example or cyclocross lactate tolerance points racing lactate tolerance another aspect of physical cycling that's a lot of riders aren't aware of, but is becoming more well-known thanks to the work of Sebastian Weber primarily and the inside training metrics is VLA max or the volume of lactate maximum. In the world of track cycling, VLA max is most succinctly defined by the rider who specializes in the kilo or possibly team pursuit. VLA max is the one-time hit of maximum lactate production you can make. And the higher that number is, the deeper you can go for a single effort. In not all riders, but probably in most riders, there is a bit of a teeter-totter effect between VLA max and FTP. Meaning, if your FTP is very well trained, there's a good chance your VLA max is pretty low. So Grand Tour riders don't have very good VLA maxes. But riders who train their VLA max quite well, in the right moment, they can annihilate people. And you can see this phenomenon very clearly in stage racing when you look at a stage race that has a short prologue. In particular, one that's less than about 10, 12 minutes, but really less than about 8 minutes. What you'll see is 
the GC riders will be places three through whatever, 20, and they'll all be separated by a couple seconds or a second or very tight margin. But then we'll have one rider who happens to have, usually by accident, a very well-trained VLA max, and they will absolutely carpet bomb the field by a significant margin. We're talking 12, 15, 20 seconds in a really short time trial, just this massive margin. And everyone starts scratching their head like, how the hell did I do that? Or how did she pull that off? She just carpet bombed everybody. It was like not even close. It wasn't even the same zip code. In this case, the rider had trained their VLA max to a very high degree through whatever method they were using. So this comes back to knowing the demands of your event and training for them. And if you're training for a short time trial, you probably want to focus on a lot of via, on a, having a via, high VLA max. If you are more geared towards longer events, uh, endurance-oriented events, and events where watts per kilogram at functional threshold power are going to be deciding factors, then you probably want to scooch towards that in the spectrum and possibly avoid VLA max efforts and training because they're not going to be productive towards your goal. And they're also going to be unbelievably painful and probably um, the stimulus would be so novel that it wouldn't be productive. It might really ding your system for a couple of days and prevent you from doing work that's more constructive. So you're giving up opportunity cost. A rider must also have, and I touched on this a bit ago about when I was talking about sling systems, functional neurological recruitment across the sling systems. What do I mean by that? What I mean is we need the whole organism to function as a cohesive unit. When does this not happen? Well, pretty commonly, when an athlete trains only on the bike for long periods of time, their legs can be disconnected from their torso kind of neurologically. It can be difficult for them to sense what's happening. But also we're talking about acute situations. If you crash and fall on your hip, it can shut down the ability of the nervous system to fire certain muscle groups or a particular muscle. Uh, if you crash and break a bone, the same thing can happen uh, or crack some ribs. This shuts down per certain parts of the body and that can disrupt the sling system from being effective. It doesn't even mean that you could necessarily figure it out by firing a certain muscle or testing a certain individual muscle. You might only see it in a, a pattern of movement. But these are things that are necessary for an athlete to function at the highest level. In particular, for an athlete, think of like a Peter Sagan style athlete who's going to explosively climb short hills. When you're climbing, uh, you know, a cobbled, a steep cobbled climb in Belgium, you've got to have all the muscles firing properly. Otherwise, things are going to just break down, especially after four, five, or six hours of racing. In order to express their highest potential, a cyclist also needs a balanced recruitment of both their posterior and anterior chain muscles. What? What? What's a posterior chain? Your posterior chain is the group of muscles that simply runs up the backside of your body. If you start at the bottom, we're talking about the calves, the hamstrings, the butt, glutes, uh, and all the muscles that run up the back the backside of the shoulders, triceps, and even the muscles that run up to the back of the neck, the neck extensors. This is the posterior chain. Cycling is a sport that can heavily influence a rider to become anterior chain dominant. This means quad dominant. And this is gets into the, the hierarchical list I'll give later. 
But when a rider is not recruiting all their muscle groups to effectively make power on the bike, then they're limiting themselves. Why? Well, I'll explain that in a moment. Hang tight. Thanks for your patience. I'll see riders come through my door with uh, a breathing dysfunction. And this can be a big limiting factor in performance. But fundamentally, I'll just say this. If you're unaware of your breathing pattern, there are a lot of great resources out there that are pretty useful. Uh, one of them is a book by, I believe it's Patrick McCowan called The Oxygen Advantage. That's a great starting point. Paul Check also has some really good blogs. We'll put a link to one of them about basic breathing technique. I'll give you the 10 second cliff notes. The first two thirds of your breath should happen in the diaphragm, meaning that when, you're diaph when you breathe in, your diaphragm pushes down and contracts and squishes your viscera out or your guts. And this makes your belly pop out and makes you look like you, you're chubby or maybe like you're a little bit pregnant. A lot of people have a restricted or inverted breathing pattern or they breathe mostly into the chest. They've learned to breathe that way for a bunch of different reasons. And one of the biggest ones is that as a society, we tend to not want to look fat. So we don't want our guts to push out. So we kind of hold our rectus abdominis with tension all day, kind of pulling our guts in. It's not cool to go to the beach and be in a bikini and have a belly, a pooch hanging out over the, the lower part of your bikini. It's also, likewise, it's not cool for guys to have a pooch. You know, nobody wants to, to be pudgy if you're body conscious. So we tend to hold our stomachs in and that restricts breathing and that can lead to an inverted breathing pattern or just a lousy breathing pattern that doesn't allow the diaphragm to expand. And when your breathing pattern is disrupted, it's almost always correlated to a dysfunction in core strength. I'm gonna repeat that. That's really important and basic. If you have a breathing pattern dysfunction, you have a core dysfunction. And if you have a core dysfunction, you're not making, you're not getting all the power to the bike you should because simply put, you're strengthening your legs all the time, but in order for the legs to do their job most effectively and get power into the pedals, in particular while standing, which happens during decisive moments of bike racing all the time, and by that I mean attacks and sprints to the finish, then if you've got really strong legs and no strength in the core or disconnect to the core, then you're just, you're not going to do what you can in the bike. You're not going to express your highest abilities. Also, if you've got a breathing dysfunction and you're not getting enough O2 into your system or you're severely CO2 intolerant and you don't have proper gas exchange going on, obviously you're going to be limited and not able to ride at your maximal oxygen processing capacity, right? A key ability for any cyclist in any discipline is to balance the level of effort with technique. Now, the most obvious example for this is cyclocross. Um, mountain biking also applies, but really it happens across all aspects of sport. It's just more subtle. What do I mean by this? Well, for those of you who have race cyclocross, especially if you recall the first few times you did it, remember that maybe in your first race, or your first hard training ride, <clears throat> you may have gone out and just lit yourself up like a Christmas tree in the first half a lap. 
and then you got to the first barrier section and you tried to get off the bike to discover that your body had become an uncoordinated clumsy mess and you were unsuccessful in your attempt to clip out or you dropped the bike or the bike hit the barrier or you tripped over a barrier and did an ass over tea kettle cartwheel in front of everyone or you suddenly lost the ability to drive the bike through a slippery corner which wasn't really that slippery and you hit the ground or any number of other things and this is because there's this relationship, it's almost like a teeter-totter effect where the harder you go, the worse your technical skills get. Now, this is what the Sven nieces of the world can do. They ride their bike at an extremely high output and their technical abilities, technical abilities don't degrade. They're maintained. So they're effectively lifting up both sides of the teeter-totter at the same time. As a beginning rider, a learning rider, an amateur rider, what you're doing is you're pushing really hard on one side of the teeter-totter and then trying not to let the other side flip up so high. You're trying to level out that balance between your effort level and your technical skills. So we can see this easily in cross because the lower category riders, you see them tripping over barriers and dragging bikes and falling off bikes and running into each other all the time. The reality is it's the same paradigm in a criterium. It's the same paradigm in a track race. I've seen riders lose track of laps, forget when the bell rings and half a lap later, they forget they're sprinting. I've seen riders miss changes in Madison's over and over again, because those are highly, perhaps the most technical aspect of all cycling disciplines. Criteriums, you've seen people lose it in corners just because they've been going so hard. They lose the ability to control their body and they screw up their weight distribution in a corner. And before you know it, the bike sliding across the road at 27 miles an hour, 47 K an hour. This is a fundamental physical ability that cyclists need to hone and be aware of your ability to ride your bike with high degree, a high degree of technical proficiency while at a high level of output. Uh, you can also see this in mountain bike racing and cross country. For example, you go so hard to the top of a climb and your, uh, your eyeballs are popping out of your skull and then you begin the descent and whoa, all of a sudden the realization comes that maybe my heart rate needs to be a few beats lower before I can go down this, down this descent without running into every rock and tree that comes in my way. So you figure that one out pretty quickly in the first cross country or two if you're paying attention. Hmm, the last 500 meters of this climb, I need to not quite go so deep. It's different than road racing in that respect. A cool thing about cycling in the world of physical... Mm, attributes is that it's a bit of a unique sport in comparison to other elite sports. Look at any other elite sport you can almost think of, uh, horseback riding or horse racing, I should say. Basketball, football, what comes to mind? Well, basketball, there's a certain phenotype of athlete. Obviously you've got to have a pretty tall athlete. Now the immediate example is there are a couple, there are a couple pro basketball players who weren't exceptionally tall, a couple five ten, five nine, but most of them are well over six feet and they've got good explosive ability, probably not the best functional threshold power, but they're not training it. Cycling is a bit unusual because we have Colombian climbers who are pretty tiny little guys. We have some European climbers who are talk, tiny riders as well. And we also have big giant men who are field sprinters. The same is true on the women's side of the sport. We have more petite riders who can be climbers and we have stronger, bigger women who can smash field sprints and time trials. And what's interesting is all of these diverse body types can succeed at the world tour level. 
that's kind of cool. Cycling is a sport that rewards really just hard work. It's very blue collar in that respect. Um, it tends to get, I would say, old school perspective. It tends it tended to pick up more of the rejects from normal sports, so to speak. Meaning, especially in America, I should say, I should qualify that. The people who didn't make the football team or the basketball team maybe ended up in cycling. Cycling is a sport that requires a lot of time by yourself. You've got to do at least some of your training rides on your own, and that means you've got to be motivated to do those types of things. So there's a little bit of a loner aspect to it. Modern cycling, I would say in the last 10 years, has become more social, arguably, in some ways, although whether or not riding on Zwift is actually social or not is debatable. The last bit on the physical characteristics of a cyclist that I think is important to cover is simply proper technique. And I'm going to get into this and unpack it a good bit. But broadly speaking, we can break that down into three categories. The first would be pedaling, pedaling technique. I'm sure there are some listeners who are wondering what that means. And no, I'm not talking about scraping mud or pulling up. Number two is posture on the bike. Also not a topic without controversy, and I'll explain that. And the third is breathing, which we've already talked about a bit. We've talked about all these to a degree. Cycling, especially modern cycling to a degree, has brought about the death of technique. What do I mean by this? Well, let's dissect a bit. If you have really poor technique and you're a runner, what happens? You'll get injured quickly because there's so much force involved in cycling. Uh, if you're a cross-country skier, particularly a skate skier, and you have really bad technique, you go dreadfully slow and you fall over a lot. So in both of these sports, there's a high penalty for having bad technique, which means by necessity, when you're learning the sport, technique becomes quite important, arguably more important than developing raw power in the sport, or maybe even by necessity. You know, cross-country skiing in particular, you can't go fast on skis until you have a certain baseline of technique and balance. You just fall over. You push too hard and you just go slower or fall over. I know this from experience. In swimming, if you have really bad technique, you'll drown. <laughs> but you also go dreadfully slow, like ridiculously slow. Here's the thing about cycling. Cycling is a sport that camouflages bad technique. What do I mean by that? Okay, let's take an example. We've got two identical riders. Well, nearly identical in all ways. And we're going to give them both a 40-kilometer time trial. They've both got super fancy aero bikes with hidden cables and skin suits and aero helmets, and they've been to the wind tunnel, and they've got identical FTPs. And for the sake of this example, we'll say they have identical coefficients of drag. So... We set these riders off on the time trial and one has absolutely superb technique, smooth upper body, good posture, good breathing, even in a time trial position, which is challenging. Uh, the ability to mold themselves into a nice aerodynamic missile, smooth application of power, proper pedaling technique, good symmetry. The other rider has none of these things. Complete disaster, jabbing at the pedals like a punching bag, uh, weaving down the road, um, breathing into the chest only, 
And, but we'll say for the sake of this argument, just to make it simple, makes the same amount of power, even though that's probably not the case in real life. And we look at the results and lo and behold, in a 40K time trial, which might take most riders around, we'll say 55 minutes, depending on the course and the conditions and the rider, the punching bag, terrible technique rider rides a minute and a half slower than the rider with perfect technique. And because the riders both have fast bikes and good equipment, they both average well above, we'll say 47 kilometers an hour. So it's harder to spot poor technique in cycling, in particular in a flat race, because good equipment camouflages poor technique as well as inertia and flat terrain camouflages dead spots. So you can be have a saddle that's horribly positioned or horrible pedal technique or both, and we may not necessarily know it just from looking at results alone. Cycling smooths all these edges out because why? Because bikes are so incredibly efficient at converting metabolic energy into mechanical energy. They're just actually amazing machines. Humans, we aren't that efficient as movers, but bikes really improve that equation. So good job, engineers. Very clever of you. Hmm. What's the challenge? The challenge is we, ha we need to have a bit of understanding about what good technique actually is so we can look critically at ourselves and optimize this. And no, I'm not talking about clipping out and doing one-legged pedaling drills. I'll synopsize my feelings on those with a single word. Useless. Let's not kill technique, please. It's a beautiful thing. Breaking things down one more level into specific disciplines. Let's look at conventional discipline bins and just briefly discuss what each of those means in terms of technique or physical characteristics. Again, it comes down to the paradigm of physiology and psychology of the rider versus the demands of the event. Now I used to say physiology of the rider versus demands of the event, but recently I realized, especially after studying with Paul, that psychology needs to be included in this equation. Why? Because no athlete is ever simply the sum of their physical training. No athlete is solely their VO2 plus their FTP plus their FRC and their hydration status and glycogen levels. An athlete carries with them at all times the psychological load of their entire lives, both acutely and chronically. And the more we understand this as coaches, the more we see and accept that the depth of our coaching really depends on the athlete's cumulative life experience. If you're coaching or even fitting an athlete and you don't understand or see at least some of the athlete's life perspectives and concepts, you're not going to be seeing the whole picture because there is a correlation between physical manifestation of injuries, pain, symptoms, and psychological injuries, pain, and symptoms. Note I didn't say causation. Some people might want to dissect that and decide who's what and where's what. Did my knee pain come from some physical event or was it an emotional cause? That might be interesting to discuss on a particular case, 
and it might lead us to insight. But for the most part, I don't care because both of these things need to be addressed, understood, and treated. Both of these things being the physical aspect and the psychic aspect. If you treat one without the other, the pain's either going to come back in the same place or it'll just re-manifest in a different form. That's been my experience. And when I say treat one without the other, what I mean is the palliative treatment or the allopathic treatment of the pain area while ignoring the psychic correspondence. In road racing, the demands of the event are aerodynamics. Aerodynamics play a large role in the outcome of road races, even 190 kilometer long road races with giant climbs. Bike handling, power generation over a variety of terrain, which goes back to our discussion earlier about torque and cadence. That means at on steep climbs, you're going to have to be able to apply high levels of torque at a low cadence. And on descents or in tailwind situations or when the peloton is just hauling straight ass, you're going to need to be able to apply power at high cadences. This includes high speed corners, low speed corners, steep climbs. It also includes rain and wind and every other condition you can think of. If you go into gravel events, then of course we're talking about mixed terrain. But for this purposes of this part, we'll call road road. So a fitter or a coach must consider the demands of all these things when we're setting up or training an athlete to meet the demands of this event. When a rider needs to be aerodynamic, that means they need to be able to fold well at the hip or horizontalize the torso. This gets into fitting a bit, and I'll just brush on this briefly, but is a bit of a bone I have to pick with a lot of modern fitters. Uh, I'll say a difference of opinion. And look, there are a lot of really good fitters out there. I'm not here to bash anybody and I'm not here to call anyone a bad fitter. Um, there are bad fitters out there, but there are a lot of really good fitters out there who might have a dis different perspective than I do. That's fine. There's more than one way to skin this cat. And as one of my teachers, Nicole Devaney would say, what you're doing is solving the fractal. Well, guess what? There are a lot of ways to solve a fractal. What do I mean by that? Human beings are far, far more complex than we cerebrally understand. If you look at the number of cells in the body, it's astronomical. And if you consider the number of calculations the human mind does per day, it's far more advanced than any MacBook Pro by a factor of some impressive number. So what's beautiful about humans is God is a novelty generator meaning we've all got our own unique fingerprint and we are all our own unique expressions of consciousness. That means that whenever I coach anyone or fit anyone, what I look for are common denominator patterns, but I do not assume that any one solution that's provided for one athlete that is successful will work for another athlete because we're all so unique and individual. You have to treat each rider as a special snowflake. But sometimes we don't use the word special because then they start to get entitled. <laughs> so when a rider horizontalizes the torso, that means going from standing to putting that torso parallel to the horizon. That by necessity closes the angle of the hip at the top of the pedal stroke. And in triathlon fitting in particular right now, there's a big drive to reduce the hip angle. In my opinion, I think 
some fitters perhaps are a bit misguided in this mission because what they're trying to do is turn cycling into running. Cycling is not running and it never will be running. And if a triathlete cannot ride their bike for long periods of time without it compromising their run, I argue that the triathlete is not training correctly because you need to train the athlete to handle the demands of the event. Now, I do concede that many triathlons are dictated. The outcome is dictated by the run, not the bike. So you want to prioritize the run. That's okay. Trying not to get too far off topic here or in the weeds. But what I'm saying is, and when we horizontalize the torso, we have to be able to generate power unilaterally or with one leg with a closed hip angle, at least to some degree. It doesn't have to be maximal. You don't have to be smacking yourself in the ribs with your thigh. Riding with a closed hip angle is part of cycling. That is a fundamental of cycling. It is a demand of the sport. It just is. And so the rider has to adapt to that to some point. And if a rider really has a hard time riding with their hip angle being somewhat acute, then they've either got to do some flexibility conditioning, some myofascial release, some strengthening, Or maybe they accept that they're not going to be that arrow. That's okay too. Not everyone was meant to ride a bike. And by by meant to, I'm not inferring that's some sort of magical ability. It's really actually pretty random because the demands of the sport are very bizarre, which goes into time trials. To be clear, being aerodynamic on a time trial bike is straight up an act of contortionism. It is nothing else. I live in Boulder and we have this famous outdoor walking mall. It's called the Pearl Street Mall close to cars and frequently we have street performers that come on this mall especially in the summer and they do you know the juggling fire and then there's the zip code guy who can tell you any zip code of any town and anywhere in the world or whatever and that's all cool well there's this one guy who used to put himself in a box it was a plastic clear box and this box is maybe I'm going to use irrelevant units just for this description, maybe 18 inches by 18 by 18. I mean, really small. And this guy is like 6'3". Somehow he folds himself into this box in the way that you can't even imagine. Like, And then he pops out and then you give him five bucks because you're just like, what? How? Okay, that's worth $5. Um, I don't understand why, but it is. <laughs> this is what time trialing is. Time trialing is, okay, if we look at our to-do list for time trialists, And those of you who've been fit by me, this will be a familiar discussion. We're going to give you a to-do list, and it's going to start with, one, we're going to fold at the hip, but not just some, not just to the hoods or not just to the tops. We're going to go all the way because you're in a time trial and you're always in the wind, and that means we need you to be maximally aerodynamic. So that's one. So that puts global tension on the fascial chain, or if you're familiar with Thomas Meyer's anatomy trains work, on the uh, superficial back line, which runs all the way from the back of the head down to the Achilles. It's one continuous line of fascia. So as soon as we fold over maximally, that immediately strains that line. Okay, but two, we're going to pin your elbows together. So now when you're folded over, you used to have this nice wide base of support where you could grab the hoods on your road bike. And the length of that lever that's used to stabilize you is from your shoulder to your hand. That's an arm. That's a long lever. But we're going to take away half that lever because we're going to pin your elbows together and put your elbows in elbow cups. So now you can't use the second half of your arm. So we made the base of support narrower and we've shortened the lever. Oh, but we're also going to put it in an ineffective anatomic position because that lever is going to be completely vertical, which means there's very little muscle that can actually stabilize that arm. 
cool. Okay, keep going. Now we're going to drop your head as low as you can because we want to fill that triangle between your elbows and your shoulders. We don't want the air to scoop in under your chin and hit you in the boobs or the, or the belly or the hips. We want to close off that hole for most people, not all riders, but most people are more arrow this way. So we're going to close that off. So we're going to drop your head down, right? And that means that because your head's dropped as low as possible, we're going to roll your eyes up so you can see forward while you're going. So that's more strain on your system. And for those of you who've ever done Eldoa, you'll know that one of the ways they work the fascia, wring it out like a towel is kind of how they, an Eldoa instructor would describe it, is they roll the eyes either down or up. And that adds tension to the fascial system because your eyes are part of the fascial system just like every other part of your body. Okay, where are we? I don't know, we're like six or seven items in. Oh, and I want you to pedal, but I don't want you to, since you've got all this tension on your fascial system, now you're pedaling funny. You're, you're pedaling with your toes down, but I don't want you to do that. I want you to pedal with your heels down. Why? Well, I'll talk about that in pedal stroke theory later. Got a whole episode lined up on that because I've gotten a lot of good feedback on the 22 minutes I blabbed about it in the Fast Labs podcast recently. So clearly that needs to be expanded on because I listened to it and I realized that not only did I sound like I had a lisp, but um, there are a lot more bullets to add. So hopefully you'll find that interesting. I want you to pedal with your heels down. Well, that's really hard. Okay, now what's the last item we're going to add? Go as hard as you can. Oh, don't forget to breathe. Is your abdomen folded on top of your diaphragm? Well, come on, work around that. So... Usually when we fold people in half like this and give them all these to-dos and pin their elbows together and, oh, I forgot one. We got to pin your shoulders to your ears because we want that shoulder, that frontal volume of the shoulder and collarbone area to be as small as possible. We need you to hide from the wind. This is contortionism, man. Jam you in that box. And now go as hard as you can. And what happens? You see it all the time. Find some photos of your local time trial series and flick through them and count how many riders' heads are periscoped well above the level of their torsos and thus bleeding time all over the place. I was going to use some sort of weird analogy there, but we'll just leave it. The number, probably 85% of the riders, you can say, are healthily periscoped, meaning the head pops up as a relief valve to avoid the global fascial strain you have on the, the superficial black back line. This points towards the idea that most riders aren't properly trained for their event, or maybe they're just at the limit of what their fascial system can do. Maybe their bar height should be higher. If you want a good indicator of how someone can be quite successful with a slightly conservative bar height, but a very good chin height and tucking all the other bits and pieces in the right place, just consult the almighty Google and type in Rowan Dennis. Cyclocross. Now we have low, medium, and high speed corners, but mostly low and medium over loose terrain on a limited tire size. This is the art of cyclocross. We're intentionally challenging the athlete's ability to work that teeter-totter of maximal effort and skill at the same time. And we're going to make it even more fun and ridiculous by limiting the tires to 33 millimeters in width. So when you sign up for a cross race, you're, you're checking the box of equipment limits on purpose, which is kind of weird in a way, but also kind of cool and makes cross just one of those goofy sports that will never be mainstream, nor should it. It's just too weird. Love it. 
And then we have mountain biking. Mountain biking involves more extremes of terrain, both up and down than cross typically or road, steeper uphill, steeper downhills. And I'm not even getting into enduro or downhill. I'm just talking boring old normal cross country racing here. And that requires a more compressed cockpit on the bike in general, because the further the bars are away from the saddle, the less body language you can use and the less manipulation of the center of gravity relative to the bottom bracket and wheel axles you can do. The shorter the cockpit, the more that allows that. And because of the steeper variances in terrain, both up and down in mountain biking, the more you have to move your center of gravity relative to that bottom bracket. Otherwise, the result is ass over tea kettle. Try to take your super aero road bike with your slam bars down a 25% dirt grade and see what happens. Well, actually don't. Do it as a thought experiment. Don't do it in real life. While we're on that topic, I'm not a doctor and I don't play one on the internet. Okay. Thank you, Tim Ferriss. Loosely speaking, this is my fit methodology. I will first analyze the function of the rider. I have to understand how the body works, how the body mind has manifested into this biological spacesuit. Then I will educate the rider about what I'm finding. Hmm, your left hamstring has significantly less flexibility than your right one. How much? Who really cares? I don't use a godiometer, but enough for me to see it. That's all the information we need that's actionable. Why? Well, now we're into the fractal, but we need to figure out at least a way to help equalize the mobility of those two devices, those hamstring devices, because when you use the pedal devices and the hamstring devices are not the same length, the pedal devices will be, and this causes problems. Then we make some changes either to the rider's position or to their program, meaning their myofascial release, flexibility, strength and conditioning, balance, mobility program, or we move things around the bike or usually some of both. Then we observe both in the fit session and over long term. And then we refine. This point is key. For those of you who've had a bike fit out there, if your fitter gave you the impression that everything in fitting was black and white and that it was a one-time deal, they undersold it or they blew smoke up your skirt. Fitting is not like that. There are aspects of fitting that are black and white. There are parts of fitting a bike fit that are firm. In my mind, I will say your handlebars should be here. There are other parts that are trial and error. The, the useful part, my job as a fitter is not to know everything about the human body. It's a fractal. I don't know everything about your body. And even in a five to six hour bike fit, which is common for me, I will not know everything about your body because there's a good chance you're at least 20 years old if you come to see me for a fit, probably more like 30, 40, or 50. And how much can I know about you in five hours when you've been on this planet for, for over four decades? I mean, do the ratio there. Hashtag math. So... I learn what I can, but then there's a process of trial and error. The key for me as a fitter is to coach you through that process in an effective and useful, actionable way. Meaning, this is what I would like you to do. Go out on the bike, try the saddle. Do you feel pressure here? Do you feel planted and stable here? Do you feel grounded here? Do you feel pressure there? If so, email me, send me feedback, good, bad, or otherwise. I want to hear it all. And sometimes the feedback is, holy crap, this is amazing. I never thought I could be so comfortable. And other times it's, whoa, what happened? This is a disaster. Less often I get the disaster emails, fortunately, which helps keep me going in the world of bike fit. 
but I do get them. And when I do, I do my best to serve the client and work with them. That's the point. The point isn't for me to brush my ego and talk about how I'm such a badass fitter and I fix everybody's problems. The point is for me to help people. And when you're solving a fractal, helping people is progress towards optimization in whatever form, even if you both learn, even if you make mistakes. There are other fitting philosophies out there who recommend that we fit the bike to the rider. I cannot tell you how much I disagree with this philosophy without overstating it. I can't tell you how much I disagree with this philosophy. Holy shit balls. Why? How many riders have I seen walk through my door who are perfectly symmetrical and functional? I can see you all shaking your heads right now. There is no such human. There are high-level compensators. There are athletes who soar to the pro tour because they are beautifully symmetrical and beautifully functional. And when I'm in the presence of these godlike creatures, I have reverence and respect. However, I'm also realistic and I know that their time in this window of existence is limited. So we seek, always seek to educate and optimize. But I never want to fit a bike to a rider who comes in crooked, asymmetrical, dysfunctional, not optimal. It's not whether you are those things. It's just a degree of how much. There are lots of exceptional athletes who walk through my door who are doing their work, who are stretching regularly, but in proper quantities, not too much. There are athletes who walk through my door who are doing great strength and conditioning programs and are super strong and are complementing what they're strengthening on the bike properly with their strength and conditioning programs, meaning it's properly designed and implemented. As Paul would say, there's no such thing as a bad exercise, just a poorly prescribed exercise. There are athletes who come through my door who are looking after their foundational principles. There's six foundational principles, which in case you were wondering, are thinking, breathing, hydration, sleeping, diet, and movement. And when you check all these boxes properly, that take care of a lot of problems for a lot of people. But it's easy to forget. I don't fit a bike to a rider. The vast majority of the time, I'm educating the rider about how I want them to sit on the bike with better posture, about how I want them to make better power. And then I'm fitting the bike to that goal. This is an essential process for me in the philosophy of bike fitting. Because if I change a rider's bike fit, and I don't tell them why or how I want them to modify their posture or make better power, and I just send them out the door, it's going to be a train wreck because they're going to keep making power the same way they used to. They're going to sit on the bike the way they always have. And then everything's going to feel like crap. And then it will be a giant waste of everyone's time, effort, and money. That is not what I'm interested in doing. Fit the bike to the rider is a very old school perspective. It's born from the idea that a rider just sort of sits on the bike how they sit. Meaning if someone's going to get on the bike with some weird old creaky spine and, you know, rounded rainbow looking Nicobod crane thing and barely make it to the handlebars that we're just going to put them on a 70 millimeter stem and send them out the door. Cause that's just the way they are. And that's a, just a pile of bullshit. Would I have someone start any new exercise with crappy posture or form? If I was teaching someone who had never ice skated to skate, would I have a complete disregard for 
any description of how they should properly use the skate to have balance and propel themselves forward? No, of course not. When someone's learning something, you start from technique. That is how you teach someone anything new. So why would I disregard technique or posture in cycling? This makes zero sense to me. It completely, this perspective would completely disregard the concept of ideal posture or technique. You don't just start from nowhere or anywhere. You start from a baseline. This is the way to teach sport and practice sport. In many ways, cycling has a lot of aspects that are really stuck in the stone ages. And again, that doesn't mean that we throw away everything that's old about the sport. I mean, this is the title of this podcast is Fundamentals of Cycling, but there are many aspects of the sport that we can disregard and leave behind. We just don't need them anymore. The discernment we have to have is which is what. I mean, there are all kinds of Italian wives' tales and fitting that are fascinating. Most of them are garbage, but a few of them are actually pretty on point. Okay, I'm going to shift gears just briefly for a minute, and I'm just going to trash cycling. I'm going to I'm going to fight it a little bit. We're going to get in the wrestling ring. I don't know. I was a terrible wrestler, so this is a bad idea. I'm probably going to get beat, but here we go. I want people to understand how bad cycling is for you. It's a terrible sport. What do I mean by that? There's so many misunderstandings about cycling. People tend to think of cycling as being this thing, this health giving thing. Now, of course, cycling can add to your global health. If you do no exercise and you're 25 years old and you're slightly overweight and you don't run, you don't lift weights, you don't ski, you don't whatever, swim, you don't play racquetball, you don't rollerblade, but you decide to take up cycling and it improves your aerobic conditioning and it helps you lose a little bit of weight and it gives you better energy and better focus at work and lifts your mood and gives you endorphins and you don't get injured, then cycling has added to your health. So in that sense, cycling can be healthy. But most of the cyclists I know are far from this model. Most of the cyclists I know are way too yang, way too more is better model, way too in love with the sport to have balance and everything in life, whether we're talking about cycling or chocolate or sex or cars or money is about right relationship. Everything. Flexibility. Good example. It's not too much, not too little. The proper dose at the proper time. Another way to say that is the dose makes the poison. Water will kill you if you drink too much of it. You can drown from drinking water, literally. There was a story not too long ago in, the, in some newspaper about a woman who went to the hospital and doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. And after a long series of questions about her medications and her lifestyle, they eventually realized her problem was she decided on her own to only eat bok choy. Literally, bok choy. <laughs> and she made it about three days before she started to have massive internal organ failure and she was on the verge of death. Now, bok choy is a pretty healthy food. I think most of us would agree it's a green vegetable. I don't really know what it is. I think it's kind of Asian or something. I, but it's got to be healthy because it's green. Probably has chlorophyll in it and all kinds of vitamins I don't know about. Guess what? Bok choy can kill you. Okay, cycling ruins your body. Cycling down-regulates symmetry. We've talked about this. Why? Because we're all slightly asymmetrical, especially in how we produce power and 
it's what cycling does because it's so repetitive, it locks you into exactly the same motion thousands of times, even in a single hour and a half bike ride, that these tiny asymmetries become magnified like compound interest over time. So if you're making 0.04% less power on the downstroke of one side than the other, just to put it in an example that I think most people will understand, over time, this can become problematic. It can twist your pelvis around the axis of the C-tube. It can cause you to drop one hip more than the other. It can cause your shoulders to rotate. This is the fractal. This is Nicole's fractal. Meaning when riders walk through the door of my fit studio, very commonly, I see the same symptom, which is one side or the other is a little dominant on the downstroke, a little more downforce than the other, but the fractal comes in where it manifests. The discomfort or pain or sensations can be anything from I feel twisted on the saddle to I'm sitting crooked on the saddle to my left IT band hurts to my right knee hurts to my left Achilles hurts to my left shoulder hurts. It goes every direction you can imagine. That's the fractal. So cycling makes you less symmetrical. I'm saying less because you started off a little bit asymmetrical. It makes you less symmetrical. It also reduces your force ceiling. <clears throat> what do I mean by that? I mean the total capacity for you to produce maximal force. Meaning if you were to go outside and try to move your house by pushing on it as hard as you could, and then someone put a gum to your head and told you to move your house or they're going to shoot you, that would be pushing on the side of your house with maximal force. Now, assuming you didn't make a hole in the wall, you probably wouldn't move your house, but you'd produce a lot of force. Hopefully you won't get shot. Cycling reduces this capacity because the vast, vast majority of pedal strokes that are made are, of course, sub-maximal by a significant margin. But even when we go to make maximal force, there are limitations to how we can apply force to the pedals because the axle produces a, is arranged in such a fashion that it produces a fulcrum or it is a mechanical fulcrum near the ball of the foot. And that prevents full contraction of all the lower leg musculature except for someone who's really well-trained in this particular aspect. So it tends to reduce maximal force production in athletes. It also induces functional muscle length changes, or we could call it adaptive muscle shortening. Why? Because when you, if your bike fit is well correct or in the right zip code, when your leg is at the bottom of this stroke at bottom dead center or about 530 in the clock model, your hamstring is not extended all the way, nor should it be in case you were wondering. And so your hamstring, look, there's a rule in strength and conditioning. You get what you train. So when you train a specific joint angle range of motion, you get strength in that joint angle range of motion. And just like when now doctors are figuring out that if they isolate, uh, someone breaks an elbow and they isolate the arm in a cast for eight weeks, and then they take it off and the person can't bend their elbow. They've lost function of that joint, and then they have to do a bunch of painful PT to get range of motion back. Full range of motion can take a long time. So it's the same thing when you only ride your bike. You never use your, you don't use it, you will lose it. So adaptive muscle shortening is a thing. And really the range of motion we use in cycling is not great. That's also why cyclists tend to have very fixed or even frozen shoulders. We have to counterbalance cycling with good strength and conditioning off the bike, especially off season, but really at all times. Uh, the longer you ride your bike and the only you ride your bike, the worse of an athlete you become. So think about 
a Venn diagram of general athletic ability. It's a big giant circle. And in that diagram, we're going to put everything that makes up an athlete. VO2, we can put FRC in there and FTP. We can also put things like flexibility or the ability to run or generate a lot of force. We can put things like carry a cooler. That's an athletic ability requirement. Uh, walk your dog, um, change a tire on your car, right? Um, build a deck, maybe. Whatever else you can think of that requires physical exertion. Climb a mountain. Now, as a subset of that pool, that circle of general athletic ability, we'll call cycling ability. Why is it a subset? Because everything that you have to do on a bike is a smaller subset of what general athletic ability entails. All of it. The problem is if you only ride your bike, what happens is your athletic ability Venn diagram circle gets slightly bigger because your ability to ride a bike gets stronger and grows. But your general athletic ability Venn diagram circle gets smaller and smaller. The more you ride your bike, the worse of an athlete you are. And for those of you who have cycled for more than a year or two of your life, you'll intuitively understand that this is correct. And we've all heard stories about how bike riders like to go for their first run in the off season. And wow, all of a sudden they can barely walk down the stairs for the next week. It's because you've got a good base aerobic ability. And also because you're habituized, habit, habituized, fourth made up word, habituated. Thank you. Nailed it. You're habituated to longer durations of exercise that are non-impact. So you're used to riding your bike for two, three, four, six hours. And so to you, a 75 minute run doesn't seem that long, but you forgot about the fact that there is no concentric load in cycling, zero for all effective purposes. And there's lots of eccentric load in running and lots of force, a lot more force than in cycling and wham, you run for 75 minutes and your muscles are annihilated all kinds of muscle damage and, or maybe worse. Multiplanar movement. This is another way of cycling kind of, kind of hoses us. Cycling is exclusively in the sagittal plane. I mean, there's tiny bits of movement outside the sagittal plane. When you get out of the bike and rock the bike excessively or possibly, yeah. in cyclocross, when you get off to the same side over and over again, you definitely move outside the sagittal plane a bit, but for the most part, it's just straight up sagittal plane motion. So when you only move in one plane, the body becomes really good at moving that plane and same rule. You don't use it, you lose it. That means we become horrible at jumping jacks or lateral hops or ice skating or lots of other things that are fun to do when your biological spacesuit is functioning properly. Also cycling gives us weak, weak ankles. I see this over and over again in the movement screens I do before my fits. Uh, remarkably poor balance. People think that they have good balance on a bike, but more commonly we have dreadful balance, especially on one leg. And guess what? Cycling is primarily a power, a sport where you are required to generate power unilaterally with one leg. And it gives us weak stabilizers. What do we mean by that? Well, in particular hip stabilizers, we have all these prime movers that are trained constantly by cycling. You know, the VMO, the rectus femoris, the all the quadriceps, the hamstrings, the glutes, if your bike's set up right and you're using them, please. And your calf muscles, lower leg, gastroc, soleus. All these muscles are trained and when they fatigue or under any kind of crazy load at all, we want them to be stabilized. 
we want the motion to be organized so you're not leaking torque from the joints, as Kelly Starrett would say. You're not, um, you're not disorganized in your movement. That helps protect knee tracking, helps reduce pronation or collapse towards the midline of the body, which leaks torque and causes inefficiencies or worst case, it causes injuries. Uh, in particular, the knee is a pretty easy target for this one. Stabilizers help with that a lot. So cycling requires these hip stabilizers and ankle stabilizers, but it doesn't train them. It makes them weaker. Over time, they'll get weaker. So it's this is one little dark black hole of negative feedback we get in cycling, one of several. And I'm sorry, cycling, I'm beating you up so hard right now. You're going to come back and take a swing at me. I'm sure of it. Quad dominance. This one's really an easy one, but most, many cyclists are quad dominant. How do you know if you're quad dominant? Well, go for a bike ride, ride for 45 minutes, and then pick a short, steep hill and ride as fast as you can up this hill. We'll call it anywhere from 45 seconds to four minutes in duration and stay seated the entire time. What muscle hurts the most? And if the answer is my quads, then you're quad dominant. Pretty simple. Uh, when you're seated, what we want to do is distribute the load over all the lower body musculature. When you have a rate limiting factor of one muscle group, then you're limiting your performance. This goes into my hierarchy model. Ichabod crane posture. This is what I like to call it when riders have kyphosis or forward head posture, the craning of the neck to see up the road, that cranking of the cervical vertebra, the hunching of the spine, the rounding of the shoulders, the shoulders being pinned forward towards your nipples. This is, well, just not pleasant to look at. And it's also really bad for your, your body. You know, for every about two and a half centimeters of forward head carriage, carriage you have, meaning forward of the midline, your head effectively increases the weight that your neck muscles have to carry by about 10 pounds. So if you've got a few centimeters of that going on, you quickly add load to your neck extensors very quickly. And you're chronically carrying that. If you're walking around with your head poking forward all the time, then that's a big load on your body and stress on the system. That can also play into breathing dysfunction. Cycling tends to disconnect segments of the body, kind of break them down into zip codes. Because we want to ride with a still upper body so frequently, we can be so focused on leg strength that it, we can lose that tensegrity or global tension in the system that allows us to distribute stress over multiple aspects of the body, right? Tensegrity can be thought of like a bike wheel. So when you're riding and you hit a pothole, if the wheel works correctly and the spokes are tensioned properly, all the spokes and the rim and the hub together distribute or dissipate the stress of that impact. Now, if you hit a big enough bump and you crack the rim or flat your tire, then you're changing your tire or calling an Uber. But if your wheel works properly and the hole is not too obnoxiously big, then the stress is distributed throughout the wheel. This is tensegrity. And this means that any individual component of the system is not that strong, but together, because of the structure, the geometric structure of the system, the stress can be dissipated throughout all aspects of it. The load is carried by all the spokes and the rim and the hub together. 
and together those items make a good structure. That's tensegrity. And this is what the body can do with load, not impact load, but exercise load when it's used properly. And this is a good example of one reason why uh, for a maximum effort at the top of a steep climb, for example, riders will stand out of the saddle. You're simply removing the load or you're migrating the load of pedaling from exclusively the lower body. You're distributing the stress to a wider system. But if that system lacks the fascial tension to distribute that load properly, then all that happens is, <coughs> excuse me, the body twists under load. It, it, warps under load the hips twist the rib cage twist the spine rolls and you can see the rider trying so hard to push on those pedals but force isn't going into the bike effectively cycling is the most destructive of all the repetitive endurance sports compare it to cross-country skiing swimming uh running i mean the injury rate's very high in running don't get me wrong but cycling is the worst man it 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 takes our general athletic ability and just shrinks it and shrinks it. And we become these little Ichabod crane bike riders who walk around like we have question mark shaped spines. We have huge aerobic capacities and that's an asset to the sport to a degree, but there's a downside to that too. I mean, look at Chris Case's book that he wrote with Leonard about the haywire heart. What physiologically, physiologically, what were we meant to do? Run and walk. Well, running for short periods of time, not running for hours and hours and hours on end. So if you're one of those people who has an ingrained belief system that you need, air quotes, to ride your bike for 22 hours a week, or you're not going to be worthy of what? Success, praise, love in your life. I would invite you to take a look at that belief system that you've chosen to adopt. What are you running from? Are you running from your own past? Are you running from your own truth, your own shadow, something you don't want to look at? A lot of endurance athletes are running, metaphorically, cycling away from their problems, burying their stress and their deeper issues with exercise or exorcising their demons. Are you in this category? Sport is about right relationship. Cycling is about right relationship. So please dig deeper. Think more critically about your behaviors. Stop being so Labrador-like. Just because the ball is being thrown down the yard doesn't mean you have to go chase it a million miles an hour until your feet are bloody stumps. I said briefly before I started that last section, but I don't really think that was brief. I hope you're into the long format. Thank you. This is what I got. I need to get it out of my skull. Mental aspects. I do ensure you this section is less lengthy than the physical. Mental aspects of cycling that are hmm, required. No, it's a strong word. Recommended. Mm, no, that would imply that I think you should be anything other than you are. We'll say mental aspects of a cyclist who wants to express their highest inner potential. We need a tactical mind, a mind that is capable of seeing the tactics of a bike race and analyzing them. But just as our teeter-totter cyclocross model explained how cycling on the physical level requires both a high level of output, meaning very high power, 
while at the same time maintaining the ability to have some level of skill, a tactical mind must also be able to look at a race and understand what's happening rationally while at the same time producing that high level of effort. So this is, you're cresting the top of an exposed climb and there's a sidewind. You have enough presence of mind to understand that you should be on the right side of the rider in front of you, not the left, because you're getting that tiny bit of draft. Or tactically astutely observing that you've got just enough sprint left in your legs over the top to close that gap before it becomes uncapable, unclosable. Uh, being able to understand why teams are chasing or why your teammates shouldn't be on the front and go talk to him or her. What teams are trying to control the race in what ways? Using the analytical mind to understand how the race is developing and think about when a good place to attack would be or when a pointless place to attack would be. And this comes down to the balance of thinking and feeling or logic and intuition or yin and yang or left and right brain. Because I know there are moments in my race when my racing career, my racing, I don't really call it a career. I don't like the word career. Career implies that I'm someone famous. My racing history will say. Where I did have a strong, powerful intuition. The rational mind was speaking and the dialogue was happening, but also I just knew that things were going to happen in a certain way. And I'm sure you, some of you will identify with this experience. For example, you start a race and there are, the field gets whipped into a frenzy. It's just an angry wasp nest of attacks and people are going and going and attacking and attacking and riders are falling and riders are falling. But for whatever reason, you know, that's not what you need to be doing right now. You're just following 20th wheel. You're observing, you're waiting. And I've even had moments in my my racing history where people have come up to me, teammates have said, what are you doing? We're supposed to be covering attacks. And I don't know what I said. I probably didn't say anything. But then I just knew. It's like that intuitive lightning bolt hits you and your spine's a little straighter and your core's a little more engaged and you go, this is the one. And you follow one attack out of 56 consecutive attacks and that's the one that gets separation. And then after the race, people will go, how the hell did you do that? And the answer at the time was, I don't know. Now I do know the answer. The answer is I was using both sides of my intelligence, my brain, logic and intuition. I was channeling. I was the hollow bone. I was allowing the spirit of the moment to come through me as a conduit and I was intuiting what was going to happen while at the same time not abandoning the rational mind. Some people might call this flow state. That's what happened. Uh, there are other days where I got it disastrously wrong and I followed 36 attacks in a row and the 37th one was the one that went. Or I just didn't have the legs to follow any attacks and was hanging on for dear life. Or I was quite certain that attacks number 4, 19, 46, and 101 were going to be the ones. And in fact, no breakaway ever went, etc., etc. ad infinitum. This is the beauty of bike racing. This is why we can't have too much of a plan going into a race. Because every race is a whiteboard and we never quite know what we're going to get. This is why people sign up for bike races. Because if we knew what we were going to get, we'd just have an ergo test. And you'd go, my VO2 is highest, so I won. <laughs> But where's the fun in that? 
I want to see people deal with their flat tires and deal with their dropped water bottles and deal with the horse in the middle of the Peloton and all the unpredictable things that we can't decide on or can't predict, can't anticipate. There's the word I was looking for. Um, we also need mentally the ability to have perspective in the race. And that can mean several things. Um, we need to recognize that racing and competition is an artificial environment. We all signed a waiver. We all shaked hands, shook hands, at least on a gentlemanly philosophical level. Because when we signed that waiver and pinned on a number, we all agreed. We're agreeing, we, we're, we're signing up for the rules and we know where the finish line is. Well, hopefully. And we're going to be a bit within the boundaries of decency and safety, respect for each other's health. We're going to be very competitive and spirited and try to beat each other to the line. And then afterwards we can shake hands and laugh about it. Hopefully that's the proper way to compete. But that also should be a constant reminder to keep that perspective in mind. It's an artificial, it's an artificial environment. That means that anything that happens in the world of bike racing actually doesn't have much significance in the rest of your life. The exception to that being if you're a professional and you're talking about a race victory or a contract that's going to have a lasting implication on your lifestyle and those of your loved ones. So if you're racing to earn your place in the pro tour, or you are racing to win a race that a competition that will have a significant financial impact on the rest of your life, then that's different. But look, that's point. 0.5% if that of all races and all racers even for those at that level most of the races don't have that kind of lasting impact or a significant tilt on things so what i'm saying is take a moment to have a deep breath and look at your race and think about it and understand that what happens here really won't have lasting ramifications whether you get third or eighth in that weekend criterium in the Masters 35 plus category four race, while it seems like a very important thing at the time, and it is important, I'm not trying to downplay anyone's athletic goals. I, I'm the world's biggest bike dork here. Like, keep that in mind. But I think at moments we can all benefit from having just a little bit of perspective and understanding that the stakes aren't quite as high as maybe our reptile brain makes them out to be. Right? Also, think like a team member when like an individual. Um, as Vodders used to say, cycling is a team sport where an individual wins. So cycling's a bit unusual in that respect. Most team sports are team sports and most other sports are individual sports. Cycling blends the two in a weird way. That means there's going to be some weird, awkward tension at times. Do I lead my teammate out for this sprint or do I go for it myself? Do I attack in the end of the race or do I intentionally hold back to help my GC rider make it to the line? Do I attack and blow the group apart when I think it might end up making my own teammate get dropped? So we need to have mental perspective and clarity and lessons in this respect. From an emotional perspective, we also just need to simply learn from our mistakes. 
take them forward, but evolve. Or as Paul would say, he, he always talks about how he would like to rephrase our terminology. Instead of there being winners and losers in sport, there should be winners and learners. And that sounds a little bit like a motivational cat poster, but I still love it because man, it took me a long time to learn this lesson. I was such a pouty crybaby when I would get my ass kicked in races when I was younger. It took forever for me to get over it. I was so mopey and so crushed. And um, I'm so glad that I've moved on from that phase. But I'm not faulting anyone who gets bummed out after a bike race. But I also want you to keep in mind, this goes back to the perspective, like please. No matter how big your bike race was, it was still a bike race. It was still just a bike race. And try to try to appreciate that um, because the reality is we should all be pers- approaching this sport. I think here's that should word again <clears throat> from a perspective of gratitude. The fact is the ability we have, the opportunity we are taking to compete is an opportunity of, well, luxury really. Because there are a lot of people in the world who do not have the financial means, the time, the health, the mental clarity, the physical ability to compete, or even just the logistical ability. I mean, there are lots of people who live in lots of places of the world where there is no such thing as bike racing. (laughs) So just, I think it's worth examining all the things we have, the gratitude we can have for our little happy bike racing lives that alone can make the competitive experience so joyful. Even if you get smoked in your bike race. The last part of this section is intuition. And I'm not going to unpack this fully in this podcast because it will get a lot of unpacking. And in a future episode I will do, that'll be titled something like right relationship with technology, which is a huge topic in our sport right now. This is part of the death of technique in cycling, the focus on FTP, the focus on power and metrics and watts and the engineering aspect of things. And what are we doing when we focus a bit too much on that side of the spectrum? We lose our intuition. Look, I mean, there are lots of bike races that have been won with no hurry monitors and no power meters. And what I would like people to understand is when you have power as an end goal, you are, I'm going to go and just say it, you're doing it wrong. I don't like to word that, use that word very often. You are using, your relationship with your power meter is suboptimal. We'll say it that way. Why? Because power is not an end goal for competitive cyclists, nor should it be. It's a metric we use to help us triangulate our position. We're trying to figure out what's actually happening in the human body. We're trying to have an insight into the fractal, the black box training program. The, the problem of how we, the result we get when we put an input in, what is training? It's a black box issue. It's a black box problem. You give a rider a training input and then something happens in the middle and then an output comes out. Now, it's not to say that that's random. It's not. It's just that we don't know all the variables that go on in there. All the biochemical responses and reactions, all the hormonal reactions, all the physics that goes on in a bike race that determine how you got beat in that sprint. We don't have a model yet for every molecule of air that came around you and hit your wheel more than the other riders or whatever determined the outcome by three millimeters. 
or a photo finish. So what can you control? What are we trying to do? We're trying to refine our intuition. We're trying to know in a key moment of a bike race, how well do you understand your own body? How many bullets do you have left? And I don't mean the number of KJs of FRC. I mean, when that rider attacks you on the hill, do you shift down three cogs and stand up and match that acceleration or not? Do you think you can make it to the line solo or not? Can you cross that gap or not? How many more attacks do you have in your legs? Do you need to drink the rest of your bid now or in half an hour? What are your blood sugar levels? I don't need uh, a permanent insulin measuring device stuck in my skin to tell me that. It can, but really, and if I use it, I'll use it as a way to craft my understanding. Really what I want to do is know internally, my blood sugar is low. I need to eat a banana. That's the end goal of technology. That's the intuition we're trying to refine by using these metrics. And ultimately, that's what a good bike rider has is a strong sense of intuition to know themselves as an athlete. This comes down to all things, fueling, hydration, decision-making at the key moment of a race, your own internal tachometer. How hard am I going? How many points left do I have? Can I make it on this guy's wheel to the top of this climb? I've got a can and a half to go. And I'm already breathing through every orifice. How much deeper can I go? Good. You made it so far, and yet there's a little bit more to go. I'd like to talk about this hierarchy of performance factors. This is inspired by Paul Check's totem pole. It represents a... It, it, it actually is a drawing of a totem pole with different things on it, and it's the fundamentals that keep an organism alive. And we'll put a, a link to this in the podcast uh, notes so you can see what I'm talking about. But it's a pretty cool concept. Keeping in mind that the body is a cybernetic organism or a system of systems. I hope you found this exploration on the fundamentals of cycling useful. It probably went in a lot of different rabbit holes that you may have not expected. Uh, whether or not those were useful, I don't know, but I, I hope they were. And um, if you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. We'll put my email in the show notes and you can comment to your heart's delight. Have a lovely day. Thanks for listening. I'm Colby Pierce, signing off. Listen up, monkeys. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the guest or me. They do not represent Fast Labs, Fast Talk, Chris Case, Trevor Connor, Santa Claus, or anyone else. Thanks. <laughs>